That's what Chelsea and I are. We're excited about missions. We're missionaries. And actually, that's where I want to start. <laughs> what do we missionaries love to talk about? We love to talk about the gospel, right? And uh, today, that's what I want to talk about. And the, the way I want to start, perfect. This is probably the Evan that Ryan remembers. This is Evan in 2009. And uh, this picture was actually taken two weeks after I first believed in the gospel. And I remember the night clearly. I was with my height. So I was a junior in high school, 17 years old. And um, it was a winter retreat with our church, our high school church. It was the last night. And I remember the speaker's name even. His name was Bob Lenz. And uh, it was amazing. Um, This is what he said. This is some of the things he said. He told me that I was a sinner. And that because of my sin, I was separated from God. And that I couldn't save myself. But that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And that if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. And that son of God, his name was Jesus. And Jesus came and lived the perfect life. The perfect life that we can't live. And then he died the perfect sacrifice so that we could be forgiven. And that when we believe in him, we are saved. Right? That's the word we use. We're saved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel I heard and I believed. And two weeks later, you, I don't know if you can see the circle. There's already fruit of the spirit in my life. There's some grapes there you can see. Sorry, that's a dumb joke. But, um, right? I believed that night that I was saved from my sins. Are you having trouble hearing me? Sorry, is the mic good? Okay. Um, I believe that I was saved from my sins. I believe that I was saved from hell. I believe that I was saved from myself. Right? This is the nature of the word saved. It means you're being saved from something. And we know that's kind of the part of the gospel we're familiar with. And when we use the word gospel, I think that's usually what we mean. But what I want to talk about today and this morning with you guys is the gospel doesn't just mean that. There's so much more to it. The gospel is such good news, right? We know. We say the gospel is the good news of Jesus. But I'm going to say today it is such good news that it's more than just about our salvation from eternal separation from God. Because that's amazing news by itself, right? But if you've been in Christian circles long enough, You've heard people say things like this, right? You say, you know, that church down the street, they don't preach the gospel anymore. It's really sad. What, what are people saying when they say that? Are they saying they don't talk about the Bible, about Jesus? I think what they mean when they say that is they're not evangelizing enough. They're not focusing on how people can be saved enough. That's what we, that's what we mean when we use the word gospel. But... I think it's more than just that. And and here's the thing. You'd be mistaken if you thought, a missionary, I'm going to come in here, and I'm going to tell you that that's not incredibly important, that part of the gospel. Because that part of the gospel is incredibly important. It's so important. The saving part of the gospel, it's actually what convinced Chelsea and I to become missionaries in the first place. Like Chelsea just said, we heard how many people don't have access to that part of the gospel in the world. There's, like, some, some... statisticians will say it's more than half the world's population fall in that category. And to us, that's heartbreaking. And that's why we want to get involved. But, you know, at the end of the day, 
whether we're involved on the front lines here at the Bible School Training Future Missionaries, we all want the same thing. We want everybody on earth to have the opportunity to hear the saving part of the gospel. But I'm going to say we want them to be able to hear more than that as well. And so here's where I want to start. When we get, when we get over familiar with the word, we end up simplifying it and we lose some of its meaning, right? And so I thought, here's a good way to, to kind of get a, back to the original meaning of what the word gospel means. And now the word gospel itself doesn't appear in the Old Testament. But there are some Hebrew words, besed and besorah. I'm probably saying those so wrong. I apologize. But I figure we look at what these, are, these two Hebrew words are translated to good news in the Old Testament. And now Jesus isn't in the Old Testament, not explicitly, not in the flesh yet. So what is the good news talking about in the Old Testament? And here's just a couple examples, a couple of the most obvious. When there's good news in the Old Testament, it's always about a king and a kingdom. There's this storyline through the Bible about kings and kingdoms. And so here are two prime examples where these Hebrew words are used. When David's son Absalom dies, even after he was trying to take over the throne, David receives a messenger of good news, Biser, that he is still king. And then later on, when Solomon is inaugurated as king, a messenger beep, 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 <laughs> blows a trumpet to inaugurate the Besorah, the good news that Solomon is now king. And we see this storyline, as, as the story of the Old Testament and the Bible goes, here's what Tim Mackey says. He's one of the guys who's involved with the Bible Project. He's an amazing scholar. I have a couple quotes from him. He says this, As the story of the Old Testament develops, it becomes clear that the kings who rule over Israel are as corrupt and violent as the rulers of any other nation. And this is a problem because God had promised Israel's ancestors that through this nation, all other nations would find God's blessing. And so we hear these good news announcements about kings, but every king ends up being evil at some point, right? And they keep failing. David fails. Solomon fails. Then you just get straight-up evil kings. Then you just get straight-up evil nations controlling Israel, having power over Israel. And in the midst of that, Jesus shows up, right? And Jesus shows up, and what does he say? This is one of the first verses that kind of announces Jesus' public ministry in the book of Matthew chapter 4. And Matthew kind of summarizes here what Jesus' message was and what he did. And here's how he summarizes it. He said, and he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And this is the Greek word, the gospel word is the evangelion. And that's where we get the word evangelism from. But even in the New Testament, it has a royal connotation. It's talking about a king and a kingdom. So the word gospel, in the, in the, the two Hebrew words, the Greek word, it always has a royal connotation. right? And, and now, if you had asked me, you know, maybe at the beginning of the summer, before I started seeing this stuff or thinking about this, to summarize the gospel in one sentence. What's the gospel? One sentence. I don't think I would have said anything about a king or a kingdom. I mean, I know Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven a lot. I mean, I know you guys have been talking about the parables, right? That's one way Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. But I don't think I would have said anything about a king or a kingdom. 
but it's so straightforward here. And, and actually, some of Jesus' first words recorded, and this is another summary statement of Jesus summarizing. This is the first thing he says. He gets baptized, he gets tempted by the devil, and then, boom, Matthew says this, that Jesus says this. He says, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Why? Because the king is here bringing it forth. Jesus is the king, the true king, bringing the kingdom of heaven forth. So the gospel is a royal announcement. That's what I'm going to call it today. Part of it, the, we know the good news of the gospel is what we're saved from. Then you have the royal announcement now. That's something we're not familiar with. And I want to move on to one thing. But with every new kingdom, with every new king in power, we don't really know this now because we don't have kings. But with a new king comes a new way of life in the kingdom, right? And so that's going to be the main focus of today, this morning. I want us to think about what does it look like to live in Jesus' kingdom, We'll get there. But before I do, I want to look at the English word gospel. Because it doesn't sound like the Greek word. It doesn't sound like the Hebrew words. So where do we get the word gospel from? And it comes from the Old English term, Godspell. Right? And so in Old English, God is a shortened version of good. And spell means tale, like a story. Or it means words with power. Right? I know it's Halloween. Maybe you'll see some people dressed up as Harry Potter. We all are familiar with Harry Potter and the spells they cast, right? We know the spells is they speak words and powerful things happen in the movies, in the books, right? So the way I would maybe call another definition for gospel, if you look at the Old English, where it comes from, the word, a powerful story would be a good way to maybe define it as well. And so the three things we've seen... In summary, just going back to the original meaning, we know the good news part. We just looked at the royal announcement, and it always has a royal connotation. And we're all, I'm also going to say that the gospel is a powerful story. And now the story aspect of the gospel, you know, we don't think about stories enough and how important they are to our lives, right? When, I, when Chelsea and I this summer, we got to be missionaries in VBS for our church, and so we got to talk about what do missionaries do? <laughs> and you know how we explained it to them? We said we get to tell the best true story ever told. And especially, we, get, we love to tell it to people who have never heard it before. Because it's an awesome story. And it's the truest story. And you know, it's funny. We, we think of story time or thing, we think of it as kind of childish, right? But stories are really important to us, too, as adults. And here's, here's a way I'm going to prove it to you. It's been beautiful at night, fall. I don't know if you guys have had campfires and stuff. But have you ever, got, have you ever stood outside late at night and just kind of looked up at the stars? It's a clear night. You're starting to feel those feelings, you know. And you just wonder, why am I here? Have you guys ever wondered that? How would we answer that question? Now, I know some of you in here would answer this way. You'd say, you know what? I'm here because I was created by God, the creator of the universe, right? And he created me to partner with him in his creation, to love him, to serve him, and to love others, and to have a relationship with him. We would answer that question with the story in Genesis, the creation story, right? 
And that's exactly why God gave us the Bible in the form that he gave it to us. It's not just a list of abstract facts about God. It's a story. From beginning to end, it's a story. And that's what shapes so many of our deepest held beliefs are always rooted in stories. And that's what the Bible is. And so this story about a king, the King Jesus, you have the story of creation. God creates man. What do they do? They fall, the fall of man. And then right there in Genesis 3, God promises a seed of the woman will come. And then as the Bible story develops, it it becomes clear that it's going to be a king. And this good king that's going to bring the whole world, bless all the nations, and bring the world back to what it was like before creation, or when creation originally happened. And so Jesus shows up claiming to be that king, claiming to be bringing forth this new kingdom with his royal announcement, the gospel, right? That's the story. But the interesting thing with this royal announcement is it forces us to make a decision, right? When Jesus says, I am the king, I am the true king, we either believe it or we don't. Some of us do and some of us don't. But, you know, again, what I said earlier, what I want to focus on is what does it actually look like to live in his kingdom? What does it look like to live our lives as if Jesus is king? And so that's where I want to transition a little bit. And you know what? I know some of us here have experienced it. Some of us know what it looks like to live as if Jesus is king. Some of us are living that way right now. But I know some of us aren't always. And so what I want to real quick ask before, before we talk about that, I know all of us here have experienced this. We have all lived as if Jesus wasn't king, right? Even me. I mean, I'm sure if you ask Chelsea, my wife, she could probably tell you how this morning I didn't live as if Jesus was king. You can ask her afterwards. But, you know, that begs another question. If we're living as if Jesus isn't king a lot of the times, who are we living for? What kings are we living for? And, you know, that could be a really hard question for us to answer. Because in our own culture, we have blind spots, right? We are products of our own culture. Especially if you've lived in America your whole life. You know, we're like fish in water. We don't even know it's there. And so as Chelsea and I have gone through our missionary training, we've heard so many stories about people who live in tribes still to this day in just completely different ways than us. And as we've heard stories, you know, I realized it's really easy to see in people of different cultures when they're living for other kings than Jesus. And it's also really easy to see when they're living for Jesus. And so before we get, before we flip it on back on us, I'm going to tell a story about a tribe of people in Papua New Guinea. And so this is a family, one of our, one of our teachers who was a missionary, he was a missionary to these people. They're called the Baguido tribe, the Baguido people. And they live just about as far away as you can, literally as far away as you can from here, the other side of the world. And our missionary friend Brian, he taught us a lot of our tribal church planning training. He told us a lot of stories about the Baguido people. And so I'm going to tell a story today. Jenatin is there on the right, and this is his family. Antonia, his wife, is in the middle, and there's some of their kids. And the Baguido people, if you or I were to move in with them right now, we would very quickly be able to see what kings they live for. It would be pretty clear. 
They live for their ancestors. Now, they believe their ancestors had died, right? But they, they believe that their ancestors still lived among them and, and could affect every part of their lives. Now, anytime anything in a tribe happened, say somebody got sick, somebody must have upset the ancestors. Maybe someone dies. Somebody must have upset the ancestors. Whether there's a drought, a famine, anything, good or bad, it was always because of the ancestors. And you know, because of this belief that they had, they lived their lives in incredible fear. It's hard for me to even communicate. It's hard for me to even understand. I mean, Brian had talked to his friend, Janetin, and Janetin would say, you know, I never knew what a good night of sleep was. I would be up 24-7 afraid of, of upsetting the ancestors. I would constantly be trying to appease them. But like I said, our missionary friend Brian and his family and another family with Ethnos 360, 20 years ago they moved in with the Baguido people. And they lived with them. And it took them four or five years to learn their language, which was a difficult language, and their culture. And then they started translating a little bit of the Bible. They really got to know people. They really got close with a lot of these people. And then they started teaching them through the story of the Bible. And they went all the way. They got all the way to Jesus. And they told the gospel story that Jesus is the true king. He came and died. And if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. And to this day, guys, there is a church in the Baguio tribe. I was going to say they're meeting right now, but it's, they met yesterday. It's the complete opposite of the world. But in this family right here, they all believe right now. Janetin, Antonia, and their family, they are believers. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amazing, right? But, you know, when Brian talked to us in our training, he told us, Evan, you know, it's not as simple as them simply just accepting Jesus as their king. There's another step they have to take, and it doesn't happen overnight. They also have to reject their old kings. And we can probably relate to that ourselves, right? I mean, I remember my junior year, you saw me when I was 17 years old. When I first believed, a lot of things changed, but definitely not everything. I'm sure Ryan could even tell you stories. As him and I used to meet together at UConn for a couple years after, I'm sure he still saw me living for old kings, other kings. It takes time before we get to the point where we're ready to reject. But that's such an important step. And, you know, I've found it's human nature for us, even as Christians, to revert to our old kings when hard things happen, right? It's when hard things happen that we can often see who our old kings are and where our true allegiances lie. And so this is where I'm going to tell a little bit of a sad story here. And this is about Janetin and his family. This is one of their daughters. Her name, was, her name is Haga. And so Janetin and his wife, they were on an errand, Papua New Guinea style, right? They were in canoes. Janetin was in the, it's like the highway of Papua New Guinea. He was in one canoe, going down the canoe. And his wife, Antonia and Haga, were in another canoe, following them on their errand. Right? And so Janetin pulls up on shore of the jungle, hops out, runs up to do his errand with some people who lived up there. Antonia comes in right behind him, boom, hops out, starts to follow him. And baby Haga hops out too. She's going to follow her parents. 
But when baby Haga jumps out, there's a snake. And the snake bites her twice. It's a very deadly snake. And she's only two years old. She's so afraid. She was paralyzed in fear. And by the time her mother heard her crying and knocked the snake off, it was too late. And so baby Haga died. A tragedy in the tribe. And um, now this happened, this happened three years after there was a church there. So there's three years into there are a group of Baguido people who are believers and a group of them who are unbelievers. And the two groups respond to this incredibly differently, right? So the unbelievers respond this way. And this is the way they responded for their whole history. And it's going to sound really strange to us. And it's going to sound pretty awful. But they started beating Antonia, Haga's mother. And the reason they did this is because they needed to show the ancestors that they weren't going to let this happen again. Antonia was with her when it happened. It must have been Antonia's fault. She must have done something wrong. And so the people thought, we need to prove to them we're not going to let her hurt anybody else. And so they started beating her. But thankfully, there were believers at this time, and the believers stopped it before it got too violent. But I'll say this. Everybody in the tribe was watching to see how Janetin would respond to this, Haga's dad. Because Janetin at this time, he was one of the first people to believe and he was proving himself to become, he was probably going to be an elder or a leader in the church, right? He had a lot of potential. He was just so excited about God's word and the things he was learning. And so, you know, the funerals in the Baguio tribe, they're similar. They bury their dead in coffins very similar to us, right? And this is actually a picture from Haga's funeral that our missionary friend Brian took. But now when they bury their dead under the ground in their coffins, they also put a bamboo shoot that goes all the way to the body of the deceased out of the ground, right? And the reason they did that is because that's how the spirits of the ancestors came and go. And that's the way they've done it for their whole history. And if you ask Janetin about this story, about this time, this tragic time in his life, you know what he would say? And he told Brian this. He said, you know what, Brian? This was the turning point in my life. This is the day I decided to fully reject the old kings and fully embrace life with Jesus. Because he was the first person in the tribe ever to bury the de their dead without the bamboo shoot. And praise God that he did. He showed his people that he was no longer afraid of the ancestors. And that's the thing. That is the power of the whole gospel. If you think about if missionary just came and told the saving part of the gospel, three years ago they did that. Three years ago, Janetin believed that, and I believe he was saved. He has eternal life when he believes that. But three years later, it wasn't until he actually rejected the ancestors and started not living his life. He started living his life without fear. So what if the missionaries just left right after they preached the gospel? Yeah, they're saved. All right, we got to go to the next unreached people group. There's plenty of them, right? You can understand that logic. But if they just left, these people would still be living in fear. It's the whole gospel story. It's so powerful 
And so amazing what the whole gospel can do to us. And so, you'll remember how I started this story. I said, what are the old kings we live for when we're not living for Jesus and how it's hard, right? We just saw how easy it is to see in Jonathan's life. We, see, we saw it was pretty easy to see when he lived for the ancestors. We saw it was pretty easy to see the time when he fully rejected them, right? But is it easy for us? And so here we go. We're going to flip it on us. I'm going to start landing the plane a little bit here. What if I told you this? This isn't true, but what if I told you that Janetin was downstairs drinking a cup of coffee right there in the lobby? And Chelsea and I brought him with us because he was going to go home with one of your families and live with you guys. He's going to live with you for six months, let's say. And the reason he was going to live with you guys was to do his own worldview culture analysis on you. These people claim to be Christians. Let's, let me see what kings they're living for. And so my question is, if Janetin lived with you for six months, what would he learn? Now, I'll tell you what, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I'm still uncomfortable about it. Because I've, I've dreamed up some hypothetical scenarios, right? Maybe the first week Janetin lives with us, or one of you, he says, you know, I noticed you worked like 50 or 60 hours this week. Can you explain why you do that? And we'd say, oh, you know, Janetin, in the U.S., we've got to work for our food, for our cars, for our houses, for our insurance, for our Internet, for our cell phones, for our streaming services, for retirement. How much of that would be unfamiliar to Janetin? Maybe he'd say money was one of our kings or our careers. Or what if after every night of work he saw us come home, flop on the couch, pull out our cell phones, scroll on Facebook, Instagram, we turn the TV on to the news, Netflix for a few hours. Maybe he'd say technology was one of our kings. Or the voices we were listening to through those technologies. Or what if this? What if he came with us to a family dinner and inevitably politics comes up? And he sees us getting so angry at our relatives. This politician is more biblical policies. This politician would be better for our economics. Are you uncomfortable yet? Maybe he would say, our politics, our politicians are our old kings. And you know what? It does not have to be this way. We don't have to live for those old kings. Because Jesus has come and he has made this royal announcement, this good news, the gospel story, is that Jesus is the true king. And that we can live for him in his kingdom. And so this is what I want to focus on as we finish up. I actually want to go back to this verse we read earlier. And this is Matthew's summary statement of what Jesus' life and ministry looked like. He went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now it's interesting that Jesus did a lot of teaching and proclaiming. You ever notice that? Even Matthew points that out here. And the reason is, is here's another Tim Mackey quote. The reason is, is that the kingdom that Jesus brings is so opposite of what anybody believes or how anybody lives that it requires an enormous amount of teaching. Half of Jesus' mission 
was constantly having to explain that his kingdom is nothing like anything we've ever experienced. It's okay. I'm done with that one anyways. He needs to teach so much because it's so counter to what our old kings are saying. And so I know you guys, and listen, if I was still a UConn student, are, are there any UConn students here? Yeah? Guys, if I was still at UConn, I would be at Ryan's church, let me tell you. He's amazing. This church is amazing. I know you guys are already talking about what the kingdom of heaven looks like through the Jesus parables. That's one way he talks about the kingdom, right? But maybe you're thinking, well, okay, the parables could be a little confusing, even when, you know, Ryan, the smartest guy I know, is explaining them to me. What is some maybe more straightforward stuff I can go to? So maybe you're looking for, what does it look like, the kingdom? And so here as I was researching for this sermon, I noticed something. That, that left side there, you have Matthew 4. That, we've read that verse twice now. Well, five chapters later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it's almost the same exact sentence. In the Greek, it's almost exactly the same. And so why? Why would Matthew do this? What he's doing is he's summarizing what Jesus' life and kingdom looks like. In a nutshell, in these verses, and in between these two nutshells, he's going to unpack it. And so what do we have between these two verses? You know, this is one of the last verses of Matthew chapter 4. What starts in Matthew chapter 5? The Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters of Jesus preaching. His manifesto. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Three chapters. And if you've ever read it, you know. It's challenging. Right? It's going to challenge everything about what we do. And then chapters 8 and 9, before you get to the end of verse, uh, yeah, the end of chapter 9, you have nine stories of Jesus healing and freeing people from their chains. You have nine stories of Jesus living out the kingdom. So first you have the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of him teaching, then you have two chapters of him living it out. In between there. And then the rest of the book of Matthew, there's still 18 chapters of Matthew. And that's where you get parables and more stories. It keeps fleshing out what the kingdom looks like. But this is a great place to start. And the way I want to end is I want to look at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The way Jesus chooses to introduce the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, there's one last Tim Mackey quote. I'm sorry, because this is just such a great quote. And this is Tim Mackey kind of talking about the first beatitude. And he's summing up, he's talking as if he's Jesus. And he says this, he said, Jesus is saying this. Here's how power works in my kingdom. Those who think they're important and think they have the most to offer in serving Jesus, you're actually definitely the least important and the most ignorant of my bunch. I still love you, though, thankfully for that. And those of you who have the least to offer and the least important, important and the most shamed among you, these are the people I am most proud of. These are who Jesus calls the poor in spirit. The first are last, the last are first. Whoever wishes to gain his life must lose it. We've heard these sayings of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It completely upends what we value, what we think about life. And you know, his kingdom will permeate everything we do. When we live as if Jesus is king, it will affect everything we do. 
And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice how personal Jesus gets. He talks about money. He talks about anger. He talks about sex, divorce, loving your enemies. I could go on. Everything is affected when we live as if Jesus is king. And so let's, let's take a little time here. And let's just, I'm going to read through the Beatitudes slowly. You could follow along or you could just close your eyes and listen. But I just think the Beatitudes are so beautiful. It's Jesus introducing his kingdom. This is how he chooses to open his Sermon on the Mount. And I think there's a lot here. But I think really what Jesus is saying, he's painting a picture of who is welcome. Even these people are welcome in my kingdom. And so I'm going to read through them. And I want you to think about how counter this sounds to what our culture and our kings say. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, come on. It's just so beautiful. And it's just so counter. I challenge you guys to dwell on these. This is so amazing. Dive into the Sermon on the Mount when, you know, when you're not studying the parables. It's challenging, but it's just so beautiful. It paints such a beautiful picture. But you know where I really want to end? I saved the best part for last. I saved the best part of God's kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom, for last. I want you guys to leave thinking about what it looks like to live in this kingdom. But what I want to tell you with this best part is who gets to decide who's in the kingdom? Who gets to decide how you get into the kingdom? The king. King Jesus. And do you know what Jesus chose? Did he choose money? Did he choose power? Did he choose morality? If you're just a good enough person, he'll let you in. King Jesus chose faith. Faith. Why? Why does Jesus choose faith? Because it can be the possession of anyone. I don't care if you're rich or poor, male or female, young or old, educated, illiterate, employed or unemployed, healthy or sick, parent or child. Faith is an equal opportunity for every single person. Everybody can 
possess. Anybody can believe in Jesus as their king and their savior. The way into the kingdom is through its king. And you know, there's a little story, and this is where I'm actually ending. There's a story between Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus says, repent of your sins. There's a little story between that and the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus, again, he, he announces his kingdom, right? Here I am, the kingdom of heaven has come, I'm the king. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is made up of people, right? So what's the next thing Jesus needs to do? He needs to form a people. And how does Jesus do that? <laughs> he just takes a stroll around the lake, the Sea of Galilee. The king of the universe, just taking a stroll. And the first people he sees are two Jewish fishermen. Andrew and Peter. And he simply says, follow me. He doesn't beg. He doesn't force. He doesn't manipulate. He simply invites them to follow him. And what's so beautiful is that that invitation is still open to us right now. And so I want to invite all of us here. You know, maybe some of you here have never thought of Jesus as your king or the king of the universe. Maybe some of you have, but you just haven't been living like it. The way I want to end here is to give us an opportunity for all of us to believe as Jesus is our king and to start thinking about what it looks like to live like that. And so just to sum it up, we talked about the gospel. The gospel, it's a powerful story about a new king and a new way of life. And my goodness, is it good news. So I'm just going to close us in prayer here. Lord, thank you so much for just how beautiful your kingdom is. How you invite all of us to partner with you. And God, I just, I just thank you so much for your son. Not only that he teaches us what it looks like, but that he modeled it for us. He showed us how to live. How to be human. A new way to be human. And so we ask that you would help us. Help us to learn to see how to live this new way of life in your kingdom. And God, again, I just thank you so much for sending him not just for saving us, but saving us for a partnership in his kingdom, in your kingdom, God. Use us, Lord. Use us to further it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.